0: We just sang a few songs about things such as a beautiful life. This world is not my home. And as you and I think about songs along those lines, doesn't it seem that it rests in our heart an understanding of the true appreciation of life upon this earth, a time of preparation and a time of making ready for certainly that great and noble day of judgment. It's good that we've each been glad the blessing of assembly today The lesson title, as you may notice on the wall behind me, contains a word with which you might be somewhat unfamiliar, but I think in just a moment it will be an easy one to appreciate, because I'm going to begin the lesson with some of these thoughts at the top. Several years ago, uh, Steve Higginbotham, you might remember he preached our gospel meeting not that long ago, but he preached a sermon in which he made reference to a few items, and some of these ideas were at least a part of that lesson. It is true that you and I are quite familiar with things that are called truisms. It's a statement that is self-evidently true. It just is. And you don't really need to offer a lot of proof. You don't need to offer a lot of explanation. It's just true. For example, since Tom is not dead, he's alive. Well, that's just true. I don't need to go into a great deal of explanation about the characteristics of being alive. You and I know what that means i use used that as an example, though, to say this. There are other statements that are untruisms. And you can notice about the bottom of that slide what I mean by that statement. An untruism is a statement that is not true, although it is by and large accepted as true. May I say that again? It's a statement that's not true, but yet it is commonly thought to be true. We're going to look at a few of these from the Bible this morning. That is to say, things the Bible actually says versus what people sometimes suppose that it says. And you and I have often heard these, and maybe even you and I have rested upon some of the considerations of them. And yet, might we look at the verses somewhat carefully and note that the Bible doesn't say what many people suppose that it actually does say. In fact, as you and I start that, look at this first one. Have you ever heard someone make this statement, God will never give me more than I can bear. You've heard it, haven't you? You've heard someone make the statement, God will never allow me to suffer or at least be faced with more than I can bear. Where's that found in the Bible? Where's the verse that says that? The closest I know of is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And that was the lesson text that was read just a minute ago. Brother Colonel read that passage, let's revisit it and give some appreciation of what it does say and see if it says what you and I have often heard some claim that it does. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 reads, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Does that verse say that God will never put or allow to come to you and me more than what we can bear? It doesn't say that. It doesn't even come close to saying that. Look at some of the thoughts I would share with you and ask you to at least consider with me based upon the thoughts taken from that passage. First of all, what Paul is discussing here is a consideration regarding sin. And you and I do know for certain that when it comes to sin, there's always a means whereby we must not commit it. I don't have to sin. Never is there a time in your life or mine when we are forced to sin. There's always another choice that can be made. There's always another direction that can be taken. Sin is not forced upon us. That's what that verse guarantees. It does not in any way guarantee that you and I won't have to face some very heavy burdens maybe even more than what you and I can bear. I hope you and I will then not take this common statement, God won't allow me to suffer more than I can bear. There's no text that says that. There's no passage in the Bible that puts that before us as a prophecy or a statement from the Word of God. About the middle of that slide, could I offer you some additional passages which shed some interesting light upon the features of the thought that God won't give us more than what we can bear. Let's look at the example of some of those in the Word of God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul directly testified to the fact that there are many adversaries and many open doors. You and I know that Paul had fought with beasts, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 31 to 33. There had been some time in his life when he, in fact, was so punished by those around him, he actually had to battle beasts. You and I know the ancient Roman Empire did that. Turn in criminals or Christians or others, and for the spectator and enjoyment, watch these beasts tear them and rip them apart. Somehow Paul survived. You and I know that was the blessing of God that made such a thing happen. And yet you and I know that as Paul fought with beasts, he endured a lot. There's another passage that seems to though be so powerfully related to the idea before us. May I invite you to consider 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. As you and I remember this statement that is sometimes made, God will never allow me to suffer or be faced with more than I can bear. Listen to what Paul said. Verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1 For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Does it seem as if Paul at that moment had faced more than what he himself could bear? He says it was above strength. He says they were in despair of life. He says it was above measure. That seems to directly say that God permitted Paul and his companions to be faced with matters that were beyond what one would recognize easily able to be handled by human strength alone. But doesn't all of this remind us to some of the bottom thoughts on that slide? Don't you and I find some very interesting texts that remind us that when you and I face these great burdens and the strength of Jesus shines through us, that is when you and I can sometimes be the greatest examples of faithfulness, the greatest examples of conviction and dedication and truth, because it's Christ's strength that's working through us then. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 12 when he spoke about his thorn in the flesh... Remember, he prayed three times for his removal, and God said no. He said, for when you're facing that, then is my strength made perfect. God wasn't talking about Paul's strength. He was talking about his strength shown through Paul. Sometimes when you and I face challenges and burdens that would otherwise be beyond us, and yet we emerge victorious, we're able to withstand this, it's not by our strength that we do it. It's by the strength of the Lord. We've thus at least addressed one untruism. The world by and large, at least in Christianity, would think that God will never allow me to suffer more than what I can bear. And that's not true. The Bible nowhere promises it. What about another one? Something else that really should be regarded as an untruism, and yet it's commonly thought to be true. The other one, the next one, takes us to the next slide. Have you heard someone perhaps make this statement? Everything happens for a reason. There's a grand plan in the mind of God and everything that happens is merely a part of that plan. Have you ever attended a funeral service, perhaps a young child, and someone has the nerve to say it was God's will that that little baby die? Or maybe the sore circumstance surrounding an illness and someone's in the hospital and someone has the nerve to say it was God's will. Where does the Bible teach that? Those surely aren't very comforting words to any parent or anybody else facing a very serious illness to suppose that somehow God's will is that this take place. What about a car accident that takes the life of an otherwise young person? And again, sometimes we hear folks say, it was God's will. That person's with the angels now. Well, there's a lot of things that can be called into question. You and I know that. But we also know this. Where does the Bible teach? That every single thing that happens, be it these matters or others, are simply a part of some grand scheme and plan of God Himself. Now surely, I need to begin by pointing out what's at the top of that slide. You and I know very strongly that the Bible teaches of God's providence. He has an overruling control and He's mindful of that which takes place and even nations are in the hollow of His hand. He motivates and moves things to bring about His will when it comes to those grand matters such as that. So many examples in the Word of God to that effect. I've listed for you that text in the book of Esther. The entirety of that book is a reminder of how that God was in control of those details that brought about the reality of Esther's position as queen, Mordecai's elevation to that final position and post. And all of that was a wonderful reminder of how that God is able to rule in those matters. Well, let's bring it down to these matters. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, was that some part of God's big plan that I accidentally did that? If I stub my toe, was that part of some big plan on the part of God that that take place? Is there any room for anything besides some of these issues connected to the behavior of God in that life? You may notice about the middle of that slide that there are some other verses that might in fact do us well to consider in matters such as this. There are those who would bring us to texts like Romans 8 verse 28 as a defense of this way of thinking. That verse actually says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now does that verse say that every little event... And every little happening in your life or mine, regardless how otherwise minor it might be, is somehow part of a grand scheme and plan of God by which He is in control of that, and that was His will that it happened. That's taking that verse beyond what it actually says. Again, that verse says that those issues and those matters of choice in your life and mine, they can work for good. It is such that your choice and mind have is not set aside in that consideration. As far as those other verses that I would invite you to consider, what about the word chance? C-H-A-N-C-E. Does the Bible ever make any reference to anything happening by chance? As if it was not a part of this grand plan of God. I find it interesting that Jesus used that word in Luke 10 verse 31. You recall when Jesus taught the parable otherwise known as the Good Samaritan, that in the course of that parable, there was a statement that by chance a Levite passed by. By chance? That's what the Lord used. That's the word He described. But that was only one occurrence. What about Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11? When there the writer Solomon pointed out to you and me, he pointed out that there's chance in everybody's life. Things happen when a life is taken, be it a young person, be it a middle-aged person or otherwise. May you and I not when we visit the funeral home say that was God's will. Isn't it true that it was the devil that brought those terrible things into Job's life? It wasn't God. It was the devil who hindered Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. It wasn't God. It was the devil who brought about other matters of conviction that were what you and I would call terrible. It wasn't God. May you not be not so quick to say everything happens for His reason. There are things that happen, and they happen by what the Bible would describe as chance. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse number 9, even the ancient folks recognized in Israel the consideration of what we'd call chance. It might also be of interest to observe that as the Bible talks about that, might you and I recognize that God's providence is certainly a keen thing, and He does direct through His Word matters of conviction with regard to your life and mine if we're wise enough to uphold and follow it. Now, so far, these two, what I've called untruisms, I think we'd agree they're things we've heard. They're things we have at least witnessed in the presentation sometimes of others. What about a third one? Another one that again isn't true, but yet sometimes we hear that it is. As far as the philosophy of life, how often have you heard, if it isn't broken, don't fix it? Where's that found in the Bible? Where is it? What verse is it that teaches us this? Now, I fully recognize there are certainly arenas in life in which that might well be an appropriate philosophy. Gentlemen, I think we all know at the house, if the door is working fine, there's probably no need to work on it. And I think that philosophy might be in order there, but to broadly apply that to every aspect of life is to go far beyond what is wise and far beyond what would be the prudent thing. Look at some of the statements on that slide before you. Isn't it true that sometimes this philosophy, if it isn't broken, don't fix it, is used to defend the status quo. That's the way we've done it. That's the way we've always done it. That's the way we're going to keep doing it. Despite the fact that that may not have worked very well. Despite the fact it may not be nearly as efficient and nearly as directed toward accomplishing the goal in mind, that's just the way we've always done it. Or that's the way we have done it. Do you see the idea? We must be a bit cautious here. Because the Word of God encourages us to do things a bit otherwise. Look at some of these verses with me. In 1 Peter 4 verse number 10, the inspired apostle Peter pointed out that all of us have talents and gifts that are to be employed in terms of service to God in the church. As you and I lovingly and with joy utilize them... We do so because, again, the Bible encourages us to do that. And that's how the kingdom of God is spread, and that's how its boundaries and borders are brought to include even others. But may I say, as you look at other verses such as those next one, doesn't it point out this? There are times that we all know things just haven't always been the most efficient. That is to say, that may be the way we've done it. But is there a better way to do it? Is there another way to do it that might even be an improved way? If so, may we not just cling to that which is in the past just because that's the way it was done under the banner. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Look at some of the examples I've asked you to think about in 2 Peter 3 verse 18. For a congregation to grow, it may be necessary to do some things differently than what was done in the past. For an individual to grow in faith, it may be necessary to do some things differently than what might have been done in the past. Furthermore, in Hebrews 5 verses 12 and following, there's an interesting passage of challenge for each of us. A passage that begins like this. As the Hebrew writer challenged those of that day, he of course had just pointed out to them how wonderful were some truths he wanted to share, but he said, I can't do it because you're not ready to receive it. You're not mature enough to handle it. You haven't prepared yourself to receive this. And in that light, in verses 12, 13, and 14, the inspired writer goes on to say, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of Christ. So, they ought to have been mature, they ought to have been further along in their Christian walk, but they weren't. And then he explains why. You still are in need of milk and not of strong meat because you have not exercised. Your sense is in light of that which is the truth of God. Exercise. Do you notice then in the aspect of spiritual exercise, I might have to do something different than the way I've done it so that my faith will mature and grow and the same may well be true of you but the fact is it's not comfortable and it's not really supported by God for me just to say, well, because I've always done it this way and if it did isn't broke, I won't fix it. We may need fixing. We all know as sinners, Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, anyone that says he's not a sinner is a liar and the truth isn't in him. Surely in those connections... We could at least give thought. How often have you heard someone say, if it's not broken, don't fix it? As I mentioned, in some arenas in life, perhaps that's wise advice. But it surely cannot be applied broadly in every situation. One last thing in 1 Corinthians 4.2, at the bottom of that slide... You may notice you and I are encouraged, in fact demanded, that we be good stewards of that which God has made available to us and that with which He's blessed us. And in that regard, being that good steward may be such that God has opened you doors of opportunity. And that will obviously demand I do some things differently than perhaps the way I have done it. These three untruisms, again, probably are widely accepted. And broadly applied, but as you and I have found today, at least in the Word of God, there are some other matters of consideration. And these not only must be called into question, but we'll have to set them aside at least absolutely. What about a fourth one? Another untruism. Better to be safe than sorry. How often have you heard that one? Maybe even we've applied it ourselves. And one more time, without doubt, there are certain arenas in life in which we would be quick to say, that's surely wise and sound advice. Better to be safe than sorry. You and I wouldn't start on a journey of a thousand miles without checking the tire pressure on the car, without maybe checking to see whether other features of the engine are in order. Well, surely better to be safe than sorry in a way like that. But one more time, is it wise to apply this broadly in every arena and in every application? If one does, it seems one runs counter to some of the teachings of the New Testament. Look at some of these examples with me. First of all, God never endorses recklessness. He doesn't doesn't endorse wastefulness. He doesn't endorse prodigality. He doesn't endorse those kind of things. We understand that. But what we are asking is this, is it always the right thing to do is to say, better safe than sorry. So I'll never step out to do this other matter because it might not work. It might run into some other challenges or problems. You may notice about the middle of that slide that, isn't it true, the one-talent man tried that? Better safe than sorry, I'll bury the talent I've got so I can give it back to the master who gave it to me. And the Lord was displeased. Remember, the five-talent man put his to use. It may well be he lost some things in the transaction, but in the finality he'd gained five more, and the master was pleased. The two-talent man, too, put those to use and gained two more, and the master was pleased. The philosophy of the one-talent man apparently was better safe than sorry. And that didn't work out very well, did it? Isn't that an interesting thing? Maybe you and I have again heard it said so often, better safe than sorry. And to apply that broadly is not only dangerous, it seems to run counter to some of the things that the Bible would otherwise reveal. Not only might it be mentioned in regard to Matthew 25, verses 14 and following, that essence again of the the parable of the talents, I would ask you to think about the activities in the life of Paul. Paul, in Acts 13, what took place there and in many of the chapters that followed? He assembled with the brethren of the church at Antioch, and they, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, pronounced by way of their laying on of hands, and off he went to conduct missionary efforts in far distant places, Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to say, Better safe than sorry, I think I'll stay here. After all, I'm not near as much danger here as I will be there, like on the island of uh, Crete, in the places of Galatia, in the issues connected to Lystra, remember, when he was stoned and left for dead, and yet, turned out they didn't kill him, as recorded in Acts 14. But wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to say... Better safe than sorry, I think I'll stay here. And yet that wasn't his answer. Not only that, I've asked you to notice yet another one. In Acts 16, when Paul did come to, on the second missionary journey, that place where Timothy lived. Couldn't Timothy have been easy to say, My family lives here. Better safe than sorry, I think I'll stay. And yet, he actually left. He went with Paul on the further portions of that second journey, and in fact was a strong companion of Paul in many of the New Testament books that follow. To always then say, better safe than sorry, doesn't seem to be consistent with the revelation you and I find in the Bible. In fact, we read in Hebrews 6 verses 1 and following that there is an instruction, an admonition, an encouragement that you and I will go on into perfection not laying again that which has been done. Now that phrase to go on, doesn't that remind us of Jesus' wonderful teaching in Luke chapter 5? In verses 4 and following, you recall, there were some expert fishermen there. These expert fishermen, I'm, I suppose, would easily have said, We know how to fish, and we know where to cast the net. Jesus had cast it on the other side of the boat, and they did it they launched out into the deep. They did that which the Lord instructed of them, and you and I remember that as they did that, oh, what a great catch they had. Today, as you and I have looked at these untruisms so far, isn't it fascinating how sometimes the human family can put together ideas, and they may well be sound at least initially, based upon passages of the Word of God, but then they're taken to an extreme taken to an extent that seems to not only be questionable, but that's to be beyond what would actually be right. Let's conclude the lesson like this. These four untruisms may well be summarized like this. An untruism can be quite harmful. For if you and I believe it, and proceed to found or base our life in some ways on it, we may well then be distant from the truth, and we may not be expectant as to what we really ought to be doing and believing. One by one, these four again are those which I've listed. God won't allow me to face more than I can bear. That isn't true. The Bible doesn't teach that. You and I may have some heavy challenges and very great burdens to face. And when we do, may we, like Paul, rest upon the provision of God and trust in Him to help bring us through that. We're always led in triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 The second one we considered was this one. Everything happens for a reason, regardless how minor or otherwise insignificant. And yet, you and I know that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that either. Though it does endorse God's providence. As far as the third one, we highlighted that matter. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. That isn't found in the Word of God either. And you and I, as we launch out into the deep and strive to utilize ourselves and talents for the cause of God, we may have to do some things differently than what has been done. And the fourth and final one was this. Better to be safe than sorry. The Bible doesn't teach that one either, at least as a broad application. As we've looked at all of them, you probably can think of additional untruisms, things you've heard, things people tend to believe, but yet are not actually true. I hope as we close this lesson, we're reminded one more time how that this book is what is inerrant. It's not what you or I may think. It's not what men may suggest. It is this which is the authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of God. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And that text in Second Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, offer us a time of invitation. As you and I reflect upon our life at this time, we're going to stand in a moment and sing this song, and I hope we never allow this to become just a, ha- a habit a ritual, it's just a way to end the sermon. It really is a way to offer the Lord's invitation. If there's anyone in this assembly that would need prayers of brethren, that needs to beseech forgiveness from God, this is a wonderful, opportune time for that to take place. This congregation of people will celebrate with you, share joy with you, tears, laughter, whatever might be the occasion may in fact call, but it is the invitation that the Lord extends. If anyone here is not a member of the body of Christ and you've reached an age where you know that you should be, you know what's wrong and right, and you know the Lord died for you, and you know that the church is the institution that He purchased, and you know that it is the organization of the saved, and you know that you'd like to be a part of it. Thankfully, the Bible tells us how that happens. It is not the consensus of any scholarly group of people Human hands never touch the church. The Lord designed it. He put it in place. And the terms of entrance are those which He selected. If today you and I could be of a position to assist someone in that way, you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Messiah. You need to repent of your sins, for He demands that of you. You need to confess the sweet name of Jesus as your personal Savior and promise your undying devotion to him throughout life and then be baptized for the remission of your sins as you come forth from that watery grave a new creature is now in existence old things are passed away 2 Corinthians 5 17 however it could be that upon beginning that life you have stumbled and not just that you've fallen you've taken a different path you've begun to walk in a different way don't you want to come back home Don't you want to come back to the place of safety and security and protection and provision under the wonderful statement of the Lord Himself? If that be the case in your life, why don't you repent of those sins? Turn aside from them, make confession of them, and we will be honored to approach God in that way. We would simply state that this is a time that we would wish to extend that invitation from the Lord and invite anyone to come that might need to do so while together we stand and while we sing.